you're ready to stop submitting basic applications and winging your interview for your next nursing role, whether you're a graduate nurse or a seasoned healthcare professional, we'd love to exclusively invite you to our secret nurse growth hub, where you can get all of the support to apply, interview and land your next nursing role completely free. All of the resources that we've shared and created over the last three years that have helped 3,000 plus nurses internationally apply, interview and land their next nursing role. So what are you waiting for? Come and join us today. It's completely free. LiamCaswell.com forward slash NGH. Come and join the Nurse Growth Hub today and let's make applying, interviewing and landing your next nursing role easy. listening to the High Performance Nursing Podcast with me, Liam Caswell, where I help clinicians just like you take control of their careers and remove all the things stopping you from achieving your biggest goals. Let's dive in. Hello and welcome back to the High Performance Nursing. Thank you so much for your time. Today, we have a fabulous guest all the way from Canada. I'm Christina Capucci. Welcome to the podcast. How are you? Hi, Liam. I'm good. How are you? Thanks for having me. I am amazing. Where is it again that you are in Canada? I am just about half an hour north of Toronto. Amazing. Love Toronto. It's a beautiful spot. Cold at the moment. Very cold. Uh, Today is actually kind of rainy and cold. It's weird okay. today. Oh, a nice mix. It sounds like the UK. <laughs> Not <Yeah>. so much. <laughs> well, welcome to the podcast. I'd love to introduce Christina. Christina and I actually met within our business coaching program because we're both coaches, amongst many other amazing things. But we both met uh, within that program and we're both clinicians. So we thought, why not make this happen? So Christina Capucci is an anti-diet dietitian from Canada. Christina has been a dietitian for four years and started off her career in the hospital setting. While she very much enjoyed her time there, she knew it was not her calling. So she decided to start her own private practice, focusing on helping women who have been stuck dieting for a lifetime, finally break the diet cycle and feel free with food. I love that so much. That is going to resonate with so many nurses listening, (laughs) especially the diet line around dieting for a lifetime. Before we dive into that, I would love to know a little bit more about Christina. Tell us about your journey as a clinician up until this point. Yeah, so like you mentioned in my bio, I've been a dietitian for four years now. And I was so grateful that shortly after graduating, I was hired at one of the hospitals that I interned at. And this is a hospital nearby my home and a hospital that, you know, I was very familiar with. And it was awesome. The people I worked with were amazing. I've made so many awesome friends and just been able to really respect certain professions like nurses, for example. I didn't understand how much work you do, especially, (laughs) you know, with COVID, working through COVID. It was just insane. And it was awesome because we all came together as a family. But I realized that, you know, this was not something I wanted to do for the rest of my life. As much as I liked it and loved the people I worked with, it was not my calling. And a parts of my job was actually conflicting with my true beliefs of health and well-being and nutrition. So 
I started on the side about a year and a year and a half ago building my private practice. I actually, in the first wave of COVID here in Canada, at least, my hospital, you know, unfortunately went on outbreak and a lot of us got COVID. And during that time, I had a lot of time to myself alone in my bedroom. Mm -hmm. And that's when I actually started looking into starting my own private practice. And I, you know, started it up a year and a half ago and eventually went to part-time in the hospital and cut cold turkey about five, six months ago and quit my full-time job at the hospital to fully pursue and put my heart into my coaching business and private practice to help women really break free from this awful, vicious cycle of dieting and finally just feel comfortable in their skin and free with food without obsessing over weight loss all the time. So that's kind of been my journey. And, you know, there's a lot more in between that I haven't mentioned, but I'm sure we'll get to it throughout the podcast here. I love that so much. Yeah, I love that. And um, I'd like to add that I, I also, as a man, definitely struggle with diet culture. And I think that, it, you know, obviously you work predominantly with women, but there will be male nurses listening to this, male clinicians. And it's something that comes up for everybody, I think, given just the way society is nowadays around diet and it's just constantly in our faces and that about how we should be thinner and skinnier and all of these things so I love that you talk about stepping into your own truth and realizing that your work wasn't necessarily aligning with your own values um, and what you believe to be true and I think that's a good lesson for everybody listening working in healthcare that we don't have to conform that we can follow our own path and we can follow our own values and vision within our careers themselves I love that so tell us a little bit about why you chose to become a dietitian. What drew you to becoming a dietitian in Canada? Yeah, and before I say that, I actually want to add, you know, diet culture absolutely does not discriminate. However mm. old you are, however, you know, you, whatever, sex, gender, age, you know, I've seen seven-year-olds struggle with this. And it's horrible. It breaks my heart, but it absolutely does not discriminate. So yes, exactly like you said, I'm not, you know, I'm only focusing on women right now because it's important to kind of focus on a certain population to help the most people. And obviously I resonate with being a woman myself, but absolutely men, anyone can struggle with this and be a victim of diet culture. That's what I like to call it. So that's kind of, I just want to add that there, but what brought me to being a dietitian? That's your question, right? Mm, yeah. Okay. So yeah, my own toxic relationship with food actually brought me to be interested in nutrition and pursuing a career because in high school, when I started thinking about what I wanted to do, that's when I was getting a little bit you know, obsessive with what I quote unquote should eat or shouldn't mm. eat, how to you know lose weight. I was personally obsessed with that myself. And naturally, that drew me to want to learn more because I thought, you know, I'll become a dietitian and I'll know exactly what to do. I'll be the healthiest person and just like very obsessed with it, right? So it's funny because what brought me to the profession is not what I even care for right now. It's not even what I am fixated on. So my journey of, you know, struggling with my own disordered eating. I was never formally diagnosed, but struggling with my own disordered eating and coming out of that and healing from that really helped me understand how harmful 
I was thinking and talking about food and my body and how I never want to put that on anyone else, any of my clients, anyone around me. So I made a really big shift in my own personal life right before, you know, kind of, you know, in and around right before I officially became a dietitian. I did a master's program and that's when I feel I was doing a lot of work on myself. And I came out of it knowing that I did not want to focus on weight loss. I wanted to focus on how you feel about yourself physically and mentally instead of focusing on all the external cues and issues and messages and move away from that and move more towards kind of like you said and what this podcast is about being aligned with yourself, but being the best version of yourself. And you can't, unfortunately, do that with dieting. A lot of us think dieting brings us closer to that, but it actually brings us so much further away from us and who we truly are inside and our focus and what we actually even value. So I wanted, you know, I became a dietitian and I feel like now an anti-diet dietitian because I just want to help people not go back down that route of being continuing to be a victim of diet culture move away from Mm, that yes yes and I love as you told that story I'm just thinking it sounds like your reason why you wanted to become a dietitian kind of changed as you moved through that process and you became kind of more aligned and more enlightened about what it is you truly wanted from your career and I talk a lot about that on the podcast a lot of people within their careers just thinking about nursing start off their careers with this vision of like helping the people and you know, serving the people. And then as we move through a career, that why, that reason for being changes. It's really important. I love that you brought it up, that we allow that to change and evolve. And we don't hold on to that vision from three, four years ago that no longer serves us because that is burnout. <laughs> that is the process of burnout and becoming misaligned and feeling really frustrated and demotivated in your work. So I love that you gave that a different spin, but within your own journey. Yeah, it's so powerful. And I know we'll speak to lots of people here. So reconnect with your career. Why people? Okay, <laughs> reconnect with why you're doing what you're doing and allow it to grow and evolve. So powerful. I love that. So we have lots of student nurses listen to the podcast, lots of early career nurses. And to be quite honest, I think, as you mentioned earlier, when we work within a multidisciplinary or an interdisciplinary team, we often don't know what people do, what their roles entail day to day, because we get so caught up in what we're doing. So can you tell us a little bit about what a day in the life looks like as a dietitian within the hospital setting and kind of things that you might come across and do? so that we can get a deeper understanding of the role of a dietitian. Yeah, of course. I'm just tapping back into my clinical hat here. (laughs) (laughs) So it honestly overall depends on what setting you're working in. I've worked both in a more acute setting and a more stable setting. So a stable setting being like a part of the hospital has a rehab program and, you know, the patients are medically stable. However, they still need to be in the hospital because they need to relearn how to walk or relearn how to eat and swallow and things like that. And then there's the flip side, the acute side. I was in the stroke, the stroke program. So I can speak to that for sure. And overall, how important dietitians are. You know, we want to focus on, of course, their nutrition, but ultimately it comes down to, you know, is the patient eating enough? So in a hospital setting, imagine being really, really ill, especially if you're elderly. All of these, you know, reasons to eat 
don't are they're not there in the hospital setting. There's no appetite, you know, add on to some hospital foods that might not be as appealing, or maybe it's not even appropriate for your culture, right? It's not food you're used to. So a lot of these things play in and a lot of patients nutrition are very poor in the hospital setting. And these are for people who can eat and can swallow. And that's when you would kind of refer to a dietitian and bring a dietitian in. What can we do for this patient? You know, what can we add to their diet to give them more nutrition? Because it's all full circle. If they're not fueling their body with whatever food, it doesn't even have to be a certain food. If they're not eating, period, they're not going to get better. They're not going to be able to learn how to walk again. They're not going to be able to have the energy to you know, relearn their words if they've kind of lost their words through a stroke kind of thing, right? So nutrition is kind of the basis of why we want to make sure they're eating enough to kind of continue making sure they're getting better. But then the more acute side of things is like when you need a dietitian for tube feeding, so enteral support, or even nutrition via IV, so TPN. And these are times where maybe something's not right with the gut, or they can't swallow because of a stroke, for example, or they're ventilated. This is more so in the ICU. And nutrition is so important, but sometimes we can't give patients nutrition the traditional way, eating you know, through our mouth. So that's when all the calculations and fun stuff come in. And I actually <laughs> quite enjoyed that when I was a dietitian. So if you ever see a dietitian, whether you're doing, you know, a placement, or if you're actually working and you see a dietitian at her computer all day with her calculator and a lot of numbers or Excel spreadsheets, that's probably what he or she is doing. And yeah, that's kind of, you know, there's so much more we do. And it's not just, oh, it's related to food, that's for the dietitian, because sometimes things are just like preferences, like, oh, this patient wants tea instead of coffee, that actually isn't what a dietitian does in the hospital setting. Mm. A big hospital, at least it depends, you know, the support the hospital has, but that's something I would actually bring back to the kitchen instead of a dietitian. So, you know, imagine getting a request for tea instead of coffee, and you have a TPN to calculate, Mm. right, the priorities are very clear that this TPN needs to be in by, let's say 12 or one o'clock, And tea over coffee is not a priority. So that's something that, you know, you can bring to the kitchen, for example, if that's an option, depending on how your hospital works. But that's kind of the in and outs of of our day. But there's so many other hats dietitians play. And it's beyond that. And I'm drawing a blank right now. But that's, yeah, those are the big main things, I would say. No, that's amazing. I'm just thinking like education, patient education, like advocacy, you know? Oh, yes, that too. All of those things, like the multidisciplinary team meetings, like the patient discharge planning, community, and get all of the things happen, right? And there's so many different hats that you wear. And like you said, such an important role within the hospital. I'm curious, what were some of the biggest challenges as a dietitian within the hospital setting, like with other clinicians that maybe other people should be aware about, or even just with patients and their families? Yeah, so I would say, again, it all comes down to the support in your organization. One, I moved around within the hospital, but one of the locations I worked at was a fairly new kind of a collaboration with a bunch of different hospitals and ultimately the communication with the food service was really challenging because it was not our home food services. So when it comes down to like, you know, ordering a patient diet and diet errors and things like that, 
I would say that was the biggest challenge I experienced because obviously you want to make sure your client, your not clients, sorry, patients get, you know, the appropriate diet, diet texture and all of these things. And then there's a challenge when the wrong diet texture comes up. So it's a lot of like communication with not only the clinicians you work with, but also the food services. Sometimes the dietitian might play a really big role in being that communicator between, you know, the patients or the patient's families and the food services or the kitchen. So that's something I didn't mention before. Yeah. And other challenges, of course, are definitely, you know, family and when it comes to a patient not doing well, right? And, you know, patients nearing the end of their life and just not that it was challenging, but I would say it was definitely the more heavier parts of my role. And especially when patients were young, right? To try to support, do as much as you can as a dietitian. And for us, that came down to, you know, what would this patient really want to eat? What's their favorite food? And some of my patients' families would say like, you know, I'd really like to get them a hamburger from McDonald's, for example. And, you know, obviously if it's appropriate for the texture of their diet, I would say, yes, like, please go get that. So Mm. when it comes down to kind of that end of life care, it's not that it's challenging. It's just challenging emotionally to kind of see that happen and want to be able to give that patient, you know, the last days, have some positivity in that last day. And sometimes that's with food, right? Mm. We use food as Mm. comfort and Not that that's challenging, but it was something that definitely sticks out in my head when it comes to the challenges of just working in the hospital setting. Yeah, yeah. No, thank you for sharing that. Gives us a great insight into a different perspective, you know, from a dietitian perspective. And I do find it having a little internal chuckle, even though it's not funny in the serious sense, like in the workplace, because as a nurse unit manager, I would get so many complaints and so many incident reporting forums from dietitians about my staff not putting in the right diet. And it would take me yes. hours every week to sort it all out. So people listening, please make sure you assign the correct diet. And if you don't, it is a patient safety event. <laughs> and definitely process it and prioritize it because it's important. Like you say, sometimes you just want something to eat and especially if you've been through a big admission process something's happening get them the food they want (laughs) love that food is the only thing the patients could control in a hospital setting they can't control a lot so that's why a lot of issues or complaints might come around food because i've learned myself like food is the only thing they can control right? They can't control their medication. They can't control who their roommate is. They can't control who their doctor is. They can't control what's happening with their body, but they can control for the most part what they receive on that tray. And that's why, you know, there might be a lot of pressure on nurses or whoever is involved in that food process. That's something I've definitely learned. That's such a good insight. I've never thought about it like that, but it's so true. It is so true. All of the complaints were about food always, and that would make sense because they can control it. I love that. Great insights dropping on high-performance nursing today with Christina. So let's talk about being an anti-diet dietitian. What does that kind of mean? Tell us more about what that is and how you come to kind of use that as a title. Yeah, so... Unfortunately, the word diet is in the term dietitian. And automatically, when people hear that I'm a dietitian, right away, they think, you know, oh, give me a diet, give me a meal plan, 
you know, how can I lose 10 pounds, that kind of thing. So that's why I love to call myself an anti-diet dietitian. And a lot of us in this field do because it is in the name. We are anti-diet. We don't believe in diets. And on the flip side to kind of explain what that even means, what we focus on is, or what I focus on is called intuitive eating. And this is an approach that focuses on or focuses more within as opposed to the external rules, the external, you know, what time should I eat? What should I eat? All the things diets would kind of tell you or diet culture would promote. Bringing it back to how you feel and what your body needs. I mean, I like to use this example with clients. I I help you come back to how you were when you were a kid, or perhaps, you know, if you have children, how your kids are when they're eating before they are brainwashed by diet culture. If you think about it, when you were a kid, if you remember, or if you've ever seen a baby, you know, drink a bottle of milk. I was with my friend today with her three month old, and she was literally pushing the bottle away, like, I'm done, or I need a break, you know. And intuitively, we are all born that, you know, we're all born intuitive eaters. And that's kind of the how I like to explain intuitive eating, but it was created by two dietitians, and I'll mention their name here for the sake of the podcast. Evelyn Triboli and Elise Resch. And this was actually created in 1995. So there's a lot of research and validated tools that were created over all of this time. So this is not just kind of like a bogus thing. It is evidence-based and it is something that is proven to actually improve the well-being of someone. And we're actually even looking at like improvement in blood markers. So like cholesterol goes down, depression is reduced, self-esteem improves, blood pressure goes down. So like these are things that, you know, we try to do with diets and it doesn't work with diets because diets are created to fail you. You know, you, you do them for a little bit, but then in the end of the day, these health markers aren't actually proven for the long run. But with intuitive eating, this is, you know, for the rest of your life, you can eat intuitively for the rest of your life, because you are eating foods you enjoy. That's what it's all around. And it's in a way of respecting your body by eating things that make you feel good. And that's kind of, you know, a very general way of explaining it. But I just want to emphasize how like it works for the long time. And you can be the healthiest version of yourself physically and mentally for the rest of your life with this approach. Yeah. So that's kind of what intuitive eating anti-diet dietitian is based around. It's so fascinating. And it's something that I've been learning more about this year myself, you know, thinking about, and we talked about this before we came on, just to indulge a little bit, I have dieted on and off for years and like different approaches. And I'm always trying to find the next best thing. And what you just said really resonated with me around intuitive eating allows you to respect your body. Because when I think of diet, when I think of like, I'm going to go and do keto for six weeks, or I'm going to do X for, I think that like, I don't feel like I'm respecting myself because I have that shame. Like I have that mind drama around like, oh my God, look at your tummy. And like, oh my God, you're a bit overweight. Like your clothes don't fit. And there's literally zero respect. And I'm sure that will resonate with a lot of people that are maybe hearing intuitive eating for the first time. So what does a day in the life look like for an intuitive eater? I know it would be different for lots of different people, but if you could step us through what that might look like, it would give us a good insight. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So I'm kind of thinking of myself in this because I I like (laughs) to call myself or consider myself an intuitive eater after I've 
you know, went through my healing journey. So it looks like, you know, waking up and I've always been a person who's hungry, you know, within the hour, half hour of waking up. I know not everyone is, but for me, it looks like waking up and waiting until I'm hungry. You know, it depends on what your work schedule is. Like now I work from home, Mm -hmm. so I can wake up and eat when I'm hungry. However, intuitive eating can also look like waking up and eating right away, even though you're not, you know, really, really hungry yet, but you know, you're going to have to be driving for the next half hour to work and you're going to be hungry by the time you get to work, but you won't have time to eat there. So intuitive eating can also look like a form of what we call gentle nutrition, whereas like you're eating now just because like the timing doesn't work to eat when you're actually going to be hungry. So it's respecting your body by feeding it now, even though you're not quite hungry yet Mm. versus like dieting saying like you need to eat at 9am because that's the time you need to eat. It's like, it's in a different light. Mm -hmm. Does that make sense? 100%. Yes. Okay. Okay. And just (laughs) kind of checking in like how I do with my clients. Yeah. So that's kind of how a morning would look like. And when it comes to like what I want to eat, sometimes I I know exactly what I want to eat and what I'm craving. And sometimes it's, I have to think about it. So for me, like, fortunately I'm privileged and the food, you know, typically that I want, I have available to me. Of course, that is another layer added if that's not an option for you. But for me, it looks like, you know, one day I might want waffles that I have frozen in the freezer and I had some bananas with some maple syrup with it and I made a cappuccino. That's how my morning was today. But sometimes it's really just like, what do I want? Like, I don't know. So then I kind of think about like, you know, what texture am I craving? Do I want crunchy? Do I want soft like oatmeal or do I want sweet or savory a little bit of sour kind of thinking of it in that light so that's kind of like how I would approach thinking about you know what do I want to eat what am I actually feeling today and then the rest of the day goes on and long story short you know when I'm hungry or when I feel that hunger pang is when I respect that and eat, you know, obviously as available to me. So like if I'm in the middle of a client session, of course, I'm not going to just get up and go eat. But right after the session, I will, if I have a window of time, of course. And I wanted to say something there. And now I forgot. Uh, Nope, I forgot. I'm going to keep going. Um, So yeah, I eat when I'm hungry. Oh, what I wanted to say is, you know, this piece, what I'm saying right now might not resonate with you, Liam, or whoever's listening here, because when you diet for so long, we actually lose touch of those natural hunger cues a lot of the time. And those hunger cues won't come back and you may not be able to feel you can trust them until you've actually been working on intuitive eating. My clients, I've seen them get back these natural hunger cues in two to three months of working with me. So you might not resonate with like, I don't always feel hungry. I'm not sure when I'm hungry. You might not know. But right now I'm privileged to say that I know because I've been eating intuitively for a while now. So that might be something you need to work on in a piece you might not resonate with right now. However, when you do get to a point point of practicing intuitive eating, your body will trust you again. Your body will tell you when it's hungry and tell you when it's full and tell you when it's craving something. Right now that might be messed up. But when you get to that point, like me, I'm able to trust it. I'm hungry. I honor that. I listen to it as opposed to saying, why am I hungry again? 
You know, that's something I would always say to myself. I just ate breakfast. Why am I hungry again? You know, coming with, I always ask myself, like, if I am hungry again, I go into it with curiosity as opposed to judgment. So I go in and say, like, why am I hungry again? Hmm. Maybe I didn't eat enough for breakfast. Maybe I didn't, you know, have foods that were as filling as, you know, I did yesterday, for example. And every day is different, right? So that's kind of how the days go, day goes. And, you know, if I want something sweet, I let myself have something sweet. Whereas before, when I was so focused on dieting and weight loss, I would say, you know, I'm only allowed to eat that on the weekend, or I'm only allowed to have one piece of chocolate. And naturally, that would put me into these feelings of being out of control, and either eating a lot in the moment, or going crazy on the weekends and eating a lot because I'm making up for, you know, what I wasn't allowing myself during the week. So what it looks like in a day now is like I respect and honor those cravings and and really think about, you know, why am I craving this? Is it because I'm procrastinating because I really don't want to, you know, do whatever work I was supposed to be doing and I'm just using it as a procrastination tool? That's when perhaps I wouldn't actually eat and try to actually give myself what I needed and look into like, why am I procrastinating and work through that fear I'm having as opposed to just, you know, masking it with eating. Cause ultimately that fear is still going to be there, whether I eat the chocolate or not. Right. And after I work through that fear, if I still want the chocolate, I go eat the chocolate, but really like, what's the issue here? Is it wanting to eat or is it the food? Is it the fear? Sorry. So that's kind of a long winded answer of what my day looks like as an intuitive eater. So if you have any questions, like feel free, I'd love to kind of dig further if you want, but that's what it looks like for me. That's amazing. I think just that analogy of like the baby and like Jenna pushing the bottle away just resonated so much with me. Just thinking about how we literally just have bought into this cycle, right? Of eating, like you need to eat breakfast, you need to have your three meals a day, you need to have you know, snacks in between. And you even just think of the school system and it's kind of very much set up like that rather than actually just sitting and listening and being like, I'm actually not that hungry right now. Like I don't need to eat, but allowing yourself the respect and kindness and self-compassion to be like, Hey, I'm like, as a nurse, I'm just thinking, okay, I want a 12 hour shift today. I'm not going to get to eat until 11 a.m. Like, I know it's not going to happen because it's going to be a shit show. So, Jenna, I can have my breakfast before I go to work and like make sure that I can fit it in. But also during that day, I'd be curious to see how intuitive eating, and I can see it because I'm doing that at the moment, but how it would fit in for Jenna nurses working eight, 10, 12 hour days where the timing of eating is very unpredictable. Yeah. Yeah. And that's definitely a barrier that you can't control. Mm. So, you know, it's all about helping yourself in situations that you can control. And one tip I would have, because I worked with nurses who also had 12 hour shifts and flip flopping between day shifts and night shifts, right? The night shifts is what gets really tricky. And I know the nurses would always come up to me and be like, you know, all I want to do is eat at night. And how do I lose weight and all of that, right? So that I'll get into in a second. But the first tip I would have is like, you know, you have a long day ahead of you, bring food that is accessible to you, or that is kind of quick and easy. So if you do have a 15 minute break, you're not spending half of the time, you know, warming up food or boiling the kettle for your soup or anything like that. Like, 
it might be a simple granola bar and apple and cookies or whatever it is, but, you know, bringing food to work. So like respecting your body by feeding it. And this is what I always say to my clients. So, you know, I liked your idea of like eating before you go to work because you know you're going to have a long shift or give yourself maybe 10 minutes at work where you can sit down in the staff lounge and have your breakfast before you start your day. But bring a lot of snacks, bring meals, and most importantly, bring food that you like. Because especially when it comes into night shifts, and this is where I'll bring that in, if you're not eating foods you enjoy, foods that satisfy you, let's say you had lunch and you really didn't like the lunch, but you brought it because it was quote unquote healthy in your diet, you know, said that's what you should have for lunch today. Well, then what's going to happen if a family member brings a box of donuts for the staff, right? You are going to eat those donuts, which is totally cool, but you might feel more out of control or have really, really heightened cravings because you're so unsatisfied with lunch. So if you bring, you know, a lunch and eat a lunch that is more satisfying, you're going to be more likely to be able to just move forward with your day and not constantly think about food, not think like, oh, should I eat the donut? Should I not? Like you could still have the donut, but that's just because you genuinely want the donut and that's okay too. But when we, you know, have meals that are either too small or not satisfying, we trigger or we increase cravings more and we constantly are thinking about food. How are you supposed to focus on the rest of your shift if you're like hungry or not satisfied or constantly thinking about food or, you know, when's my next break? I'm really hungry, right? So like food that is or meals that are satisfying and filling. Those are kind of the two key tips I always tell my clients. And when it comes to a long shift, plan ahead, you know, bring snacks. If you have a locker at work, store some non-perishable snacks in there. So you always have something on hand. You don't always have to go down to the cafeteria and buy something because that wastes, you know, 10 minutes of your 15 minute break, right? Mm. Those are the tips I hope you and listeners find helpful. Yeah, I think I've definitely been doing it wrong for the last 10 years because I can resonate with the taking like a salad for my lunch and then realizing that it's going to take me much longer to eat the salad than I actually have to eat the salad. That too. And then feeling like the social pressure of eating the healthy thing and like being a nurse and doing the right thing for your body. But then you're right, like something comes in, there's a box, there's always a bloody box of chocolates at the desk, always. And I would find myself always like sneaking background and having another chocolate. But also having that kind of guilt and the shame. You know, just being like, oh, I shouldn't be eating this. Like, I'm on a diet. I should feel like I should be eating healthy. I'm a role model. You know, for society, I'm a nurse. Like, I should be doing this. It's really, really interesting. And I'd love to hear your take on, on that. And also, when we go to food and we have a relationship with food whereby it soothes us or we think it soothes us. So, for example, with me as a nurse unit manager, I would be so stressed. I would be so immensely stressed because of a human rights commission complaint or because I just had a family member scream at me for an hour and a half. And I would be like, stuff it. I'm off to the cafe. I'm going to go and get something. And then there would be afterwards, I'd be like, oh my God, this is why I'm overweight, blah, 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 blah. So I'm curious, how would you kind of approach that from an anti-dietitian perspective? Yeah. Yeah. And I think this has kind of evolved with, you know, intuitive eating evolving itself. But 
I always like to think of food as an option for coping. You know, food is, food can be coping, food can be comforting, it is emotional. So I always include that as an option of coping strategies. However, when it becomes a concern is if food is your only coping strategy. Mm. So I always kind of help my clients make a nice toolbox of multiple coping strategies that work for you in different situations. So not every issue or not every struggle is going to be, you know, comforted or solved with the same coping strategy. So, you know, with your particular situation, you know, somebody just yelled at you, you're having a really stressful day, you go to food, which is fine. But it's not actually helping you with what's going on. You're just kind of repressing it with the food. So what I like to say to my clients is like, if you're not ready to let go of food as a coping strategy for everything, let's add on a coping strategy that might be helpful. So for you in that example, it could have been food. And also like, let's call up a friend or family member or someone and vent, vent about your day and just like, You know, they don't need to like have solutions for you, but sometimes just venting and letting it out is like helpful for me, at least. You know, I literally have yelling in a pillow as an option, as a coping strategy on the list I have for my clients, because sometimes we just need to, again, like same idea, let it out, just let that frustration and anger out. And sometimes it's actually like problem solving. So obviously it depends what the situation is, but if you're, you know, using food to cope, but also using another coping strategy that's actually helping with what's going on, you will be able to move forward from that stressor or, or struggle mm. and be able to come out stronger from it. As opposed to, you know, constantly using food to cope, often I find brings people in this vicious cycle of, you know, I'm really, really stressed. Something bad is happening in my life. I use food to cope. Oh my God. Why am I using food? I shouldn't have done that. Guilt, shame, and then the cycle continues, right? Mm -hmm. So to kind of get out of that cycle to add to your toolbox of different coping strategies, I hope that answered your question. That's amazing. I love it. I could talk to you for hours about this because I think it will speak (laughs) to so many people within this. Like I have sat in so many tea rooms (laughs) with so many nurses and, you know, doctors, other MDT clinicians. And we're all sitting there with our salads and we're being miserable because we're not overly enjoying it. It's not satisfying, but we're trying to do the right thing. And it's just, I guess, if anybody just takes something away from this conversation, it's about raising awareness of maybe like your really, your current relationship with food and just getting curious about it and being like, hey, like, do I actually need to operate like that? Because we all have this vision, right, that we need to be stick thin because this is what's been portrayed to us. And we're all told that we're overweight and there's a global obesity pandemic and all of the things. And, you know, your BMI is X. (laughs) So you need to get to work. And what I'm hearing from you is instead of focusing on all of that, really tap into what it is that you need as as a human, what it is that you uniquely need from food and allowing yourself, giving yourself the permission to be able to enjoy food as you kind of move through your journey. Would that be fair? Yeah, of course. You know, we only have one life. Do you want to be 80 and say, I wish, you know, I ate those donuts and enjoyed my life, you know, when I was younger because 
now life is, you know, coming, well, hopefully not at 80, but you know what I'm trying to say. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Live in the moment. Yeah. Live in the moment and give yourself what you need and what you want and be kind to yourself for sure. I mean, there's so much more to that. That is a very high level, but I have loved, loved talking to you about all of these things. Now tell us a little bit more about your programs and your coaching programs. Eat with freedom. Is that right? Yeah. So on Instagram, I call myself eat.with.freedom and my program is called the Eat with Freedom program. So right now it is specifically for women or those who identify as women to help you finally break free from this diet binge cycle and feel comfortable in your skin and really live the life you are meant to live. So this is a three-month program that I found, you know, my clients really, a lot of them have said like, you know, three months ago, I felt like a completely different person than I do today. A lot of them have, you know, gained so much more insight and awareness into how they've been all these years. And it's just so much unlearning, I like to call it, you know, unlearning of like, some of my clients were dieting for like 20 plus years, you know, when they were little, maybe seven years old, I've had a client who was put on her first diet, right? So that's, that's a long time. And I'd like to say that my program has been able to help dozens of women come out of this, break this cycle, break that pattern, and finally be able to start living their full potential and also be a role model. I really, really love to work with moms and I've had a bunch of moms in my program and I know healing their relationship with food in their body is just spilling over to their kids. Mm. And, you know, we don't realize I'm not a parent, I'm not a mom, but we don't realize that, you know, what we do and what we model can influence people around us, whether they're friends or family or whoever, like that bleeds over. And, you know, if you, Liam, are, you know, one day all of a sudden, like tapping into your body as opposed to eating a salad because you feel like you need to, your spouse is going to recognize that. People around you are going to recognize that. And they might think like, oh, wow, like maybe I don't have to eat a salad if I don't want it either. Right. Mm. So that's what I feel like my program gives. It gives for the client, but it also gives for the, all the other people in their lives. That is so good. That is amazing. So the program's delivered most, it's all online through coaching. Yeah. So tell us a little bit more about the nitty gritty of the program and like how people get access to it and all of those things. Yes. Great point. Totally forgot to say that. Yeah. So <laughs> I am in Canada, but I am a hundred percent virtual. So I have been able to have clients, you know, not only within my province, but clients from the States and clients all around the world that I'm able to take. So it's been awesome to expand my reach and connect with other people and change those lives. Other nitty gritty parts of my program. Let's see. I don't know. I don't know. What it's else fabulous. It's amazing. <laughs> Obviously, I don't want to like well, be, be cocky, but <laughs> <laughs> I think I've developed, you know, a really great program. I've done programs before. I've done one-on-one before. And this program is actually a combination of everything I've learned. It is a hybrid one-on-one and group support program because I really recognize the importance of just having a community behind you, being able to, you know, resonate and be able to understand that you're not the only one here. A lot of my clients, that's their favorite part of the program. They love that they never felt alone. And they also were able to 
you know, progress in their journey a little bit faster because they've learned from one another. Mm. So, you know, something like this, a podcast, you have a community of people listening to you. They might not all know each other and know that they have so many similarities. So that's something a group program really does nicely. You know, we come together on group calls, we all connect and everyone just realizes like, wow, I'm not the only person that has been struggling with this since I was, you know, eight years old, for example. So it's it's really validating. It's really nice. It's really awesome. I love the group dynamic and just the ability to come together as a group, but also have one-on-one impacts on my clients. Amazing. Amazing. So if you are listening and you feel like this resonates with you and you'd love to dive in deeper, please make sure that you get in touch with Christina Capucci and it's eat.with.freedom on Instagram. It's probably the best place to start. And I know you've got a link and a bio link there for booking and calls. But otherwise, just reach out and have a chat. I'm sure Christina would love to chat with you about eating with freedom. (laughs) Yes, exactly. I love that motto. Yes, feel free to reach out. I'd love to connect with anyone who just wants to chat, even just get to get to know me a little bit and see what I'm all about. And I also have a free Facebook group as well that you'll put, I know, in the notes. And so the link is there as well if you want to learn a little bit more. Fabulous. Awesome. Well, we always end the podcast for the rapid fire round and the idea is that we have a bit of a just quick fire questions just short answers if we can but i usually talk too much so that, <laughs> that's always a problem so are we ready let's dive in rapid fire round so christina it's very serious <laughs> what is your favorite go-to food oh this is a hard one so <laughs> i have top three <laughs> Donuts, you've heard me, you know, refer to donuts a lot in this podcast. Donuts, they're up there. Chocolate, up there. And pasta. I am Italian and I grew up with my nanas, my grandmothers making homemade pasta. Still to this day, I'm blessed with that. So that's up there as well. I was hoping you were going to say something Italian (laughs) because like pasta and pizza are literally my favorites. So I love that. If you could offer one piece of advice around eating with freedom, what would it be? It's never too late. You know, even though you could be 70 years old listening to this and still dieting, it's never too late to, Mm. you know, learn about what trusting your body is again. Yes, I love that so much. It's never too late. And what finally, what is the worst piece of dieting advice that you've heard? try this diet. (laughs) (laughs) Just simple of that. If the solution is go on a diet, I mean, obviously when it comes to like having kidney disease and like more medical things, like Mm. not having foods, high in potassium might be very needed. And that's also considered a diet. So like not including those like very medically necessary ones that will just cause you to die or have your, you know, go into a heart attack, for example. But when it comes to, you know, seeking out medical advice, and let's say you broke an ankle, for example, and the clinician's response is, well, that means, you know, there's too much pressure on your bones, you need to lose weight, go on a diet. That I would say is definitely a big red flag. And the solution should always be, you know, what would the solution be for somebody in a small body? Because it should, you know, if the solution is physio for somebody in a small body, then it should also be physio for someone in a large body. 
So I don't even remember what the question was, but I hope that answers it. I love it. No, that is the best yeah. response. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Well, thank you so much. It has been a pleasure having you on the podcast. I'm so grateful that we're connected through the business coaching program. And I just think that it's so fab to be able to connect with people all over the world and share our skills, knowledge and wisdom with clinicians globally. So thank you for the work that you do. Thanks for coming on the podcast. It's been fabulous. Yes. Thank you so much for having me, Liam. I had fun and I hope you listeners take at least one tip away from this podcast. I'm sure they will. And yeah, thanks for listening, guys. Uh, Stay safe and stay forever curious. See you in the next episode. Bye. If you've enjoyed listening to this podcast episode, please take a wee minute to leave a review. It would mean the absolute world to me. If you are ready to start taking action in your career and you need some support, why wait? Come and join my private Facebook community. The link is in the show notes below. Within the community, we take what we discuss in this podcast and we put it into action. Currently, I am looking for nurses who are ready to stop playing small and invest in themselves to create the life and the career they want to live. If that sounds like you, then please get in touch. Until next time, thanks for listening. Stay safe and stay forever curious, my nursing friends.